Welcome to Booz Allen Hamilton's Unstoppable Together podcast, a series of stories that unite us and empower each of us to change the world. I'm Jenny Brooks with Booz Allen Hamilton, and I'm passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Please join me in conversation with a diverse group of thought leaders to explore what makes them and all of us unstoppable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unstoppable Together podcast. I'm your host, Jenny Brooks, and today I'm excited to be joined by Christine Martin-Anderson, Chief Operating Officer at Booz Allen Hamilton. Previously, Christine served as Executive Vice President of our civil sector, where she dedicated her career to improving the quality of healthcare through health IT and analytics. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me and letting me geek out just a little with you. Christine, as I mentioned, you have a long career within the healthcare sector, and we wanted to speak with you today specifically about the inequities in maternal health care in the United States. And these are some sobering numbers. Despite spending more per capita on health care than any other country, the United States is nearly doubling the rate at which women die during childbirth each year. And looking at this specifically through a racial lens, Black, Indigenous, and women of color are two to three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related issues than white women, according to the CDC. So what's happening here? What's causing this racial disparity? My favorite source, actually, for data to help me understand causes and trends in healthcare quality is actually a small agency in the Department of Health and Human Services called the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. It was formed about the time I started working, um, and in uh, 1999, Congress mandated HRQ um, to produce an annual report on healthcare quality and disparities. So just reading that since 2003, all the way to the latest one published from 2018, really gives you a picture about what we've been seeing in the country. So let me just give you a couple of minutes of framing about quality. When we think as quality professionals about quality, we think about six dimensions, and these were laid out by the Institute of Medicine um, as quality became a very serious discipline, and they are safety, timeliness, effectiveness, so does it work, equity, efficiency, and that gets into what it cost, and patient-centeredness. And the one that you're focused in on here is equity, the principle being that care should not vary according to gender, ethnicity, where you live or geographic location, or socioeconomic status. But what we see clearly and the healthcare quality and disparities report is that outcomes still vary by all of those dimensions. And socioeconomic status is actually the most powerful predictor of overall access to care. So the poor and near poor are up to three times less likely to have insurance. Um, and then ethnicity plays a role to, in access too. So Hispanics are the least likely to be insured at a rate just below 30% uninsured, blacks about 15% uninsured, and whites, Asians about 9%. And all of these uninsured rates have dropped by about 10% since uh, the Affordable Care Act, but the disparity is clear. But now you raised maternal health, and you're right. Our maternal health numbers and also our infant mortality numbers in the United States have never been respectable. And despite rising rates of insurance, which should increase access to preventative care and improve quality of delivery, the quality of delivery in hospitals is trending the wrong way in some key areas. The total rate of severe maternal complications at delivery increased 45% between 2006 and 2015. And complications are the highest amongst women over 40, which is, you know, what we would expect, you know, and how we normally talk about 
childbirth, but that is not the full picture um, because black mothers are younger than white mothers. And yet the rate of severe maternal morbidity or severe co complications is persistently 112 to 115% higher for black mothers than white mothers. That was true in 2006. It's true again in 2016. So literally no progress in that area. Okay, and so what's going on there? Well, there's many, many things that are going on. So it's, it's a little bit difficult to parse immediately, but there has been some research done at it. We know that insurance matters. I talked about that. We mm -hmm. know that access to prenatal care matters, right? We know the overall health of the mother is probably the most important factor. So how, how well was the mother at the time of delivery? And so what other comorbid conditions existed for that mother at the time to delivery? And then of course we have to worry about um, whether or not there are any biases against care that are differ by ethnicity. And, you know, there's some very specific, very dangerous complications that are more likely to happen for a black mother, for example, sickle cell disease um, with crisis on delivery. So there's a lot of research in this area, but I would say that overall, we're not doing well as a nation and we are definitely not necessarily widening the disparity, but this disparity is persisting. Okay. And so you essentially have lots of contributing factors across really the industry and the institutions that are contributing to this problem? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, probably the thing that disturbs me the most when I looked at the latest study is it's actually even worse in what's called the safety net hospitals. Those hospitals that are set up for areas where there is less access to care and mm -hmm. um, and their results are also, even though they are oriented toward the same population, their results are also uh, poor. Okay. And you mentioned reviewing the reports and I know you were talking about being a bit of a, a data geek. So if you put your healthcare IT hat on, how do you see data analytics helping to solve this problem? I think it's going to help us a lot to figure out kind of where to focus our energy. You know, it, it did not used to be common. I started, you know, dealing with healthcare data in the early 90s. It was very rare for the race or ethnicity field to be filled in. It was always an optional field. So it was very difficult to try to parse data in that way. But there have been great advances in aggregating data sets, in data analytics, and including socioeconomic and race ethnicity data into those data sets. I mean, the way we used to do it when I first started was you would take the zip code of the patient, you would match that to the census tract data, and then you would try to get um, some kind of understanding of the potential income. So take the average income of that census tract for that particular patient, and then look at what the census data told us about race in that area and to try to get a sense. You'd use all kinds of proxies. But now HHS actually has a great compendium of data sets for minority health that can be used for research. And you can find it at minorityhealth.hhs.gov. And as I mentioned, the issue is complex, you know, maternal data, you have to think about, you know, likelihood of being insured, prenatal care, implicit bias, health of the mother, community support, like access to, in some communities, access to fresh foods and places to walk or exercise. And as we've seen in our data science bowls, it's really important to bring creativity to analytics 
you know, you really need to look broader. The health of a person is integrated into their entire experience of living, and you can't judge it solely by what happens at that moment in the hospital. It's the last step in a very long pregnancy journey, and so you have to be careful about that. But I would also say that you need to also look and pay attention to some of the work we've been doing around ethics and data science. Very important here because the models don't know what's normal. They're going to see the disparity, right? The, the model will, will see the disparity in the data, but they won't know it shouldn't be there, right? And so you have to be really careful if you're going to train models on data that have shown you know, mm. this disparity over that long period of time. And so there are special ways that you have to do these analytics. And that's why when someone says, hey, look at this study, I'm always like, well, let me get the actual journal article and take a look at it and make sure that the study itself, you know, is constructed in a way that it would give you what you're looking for. I see. And you mentioned the piece about implicit bias. And, you know, I think that's key because one of the things I've read about is that women of color feel like they're not being listened to by their caregivers. I don't think anyone steps out and says, you know, I'm going into healthcare and I'm going to consciously discriminate against a patient or group of patients, right? So what are your thoughts around the idea of implicit bias and how it shows up here? And is it related to you know, the feedback from women of color that they're not being listened to by their caregivers? You know, I think whenever someone says they're not being listened to, it's uh, something we should take really seriously, right? Because the person who can really judge that the most is the person who's right in that conversation. And we do have research that says that there are points of view that influence how people hear you, right? So let's just look at the issue of race and administration of pain medication to control pain. And there was a report published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that shows yeah. that Black Americans are systematically undertreated for pain relative to white Americans, right? So the authors say, you know, broadly speaking, there's two potential ways for which racial disparities in pain management could arise, right? The first possibility is that physicians recognize a Black patient's pain, but do not treat it, perhaps due to concerns about noncompliance or access to healthcare or something. And the second possibility is those physicians do not recognize the Black patient's pain in the first place, and thus they cannot treat it. And so work has been done to look at racial bias, and that work suggests that racial bias in pain treatment may stem, in part, from the racial bias in perceptions of others' pain. So it's very interesting research that shows that people assume, a priori, or before even meeting the patient, that Black patients feel less pain than do whites. So then they went on and they studied racial attitudes and they found amazingly that half of the white medical trainees in their study believed that black people have thicker skin or less sensitive nerve endings than white people, right? Simply not true. And that racial bias and pain perception is related to their racial bias and their accuracy of their treatment recommendations. So those believe black bodies experience pain differently did not appropriately treat the pain. And then they looked in the reverse, right? So there were some medical students who believed actually that whites versus black patients would feel less pain. And there's actually a little bit of research that actually shows that they express less indication of pain in some studies. But those medical students and residents did not exhibit a racial bias in their treatment recommendations. So whether they believe that or not, they didn't do something differently. And so th these types of 
data points that we get, which are, you know, horrifying in and of themselves, really get to how do you take get all the way down to the belief system to find out if that bias is unconscious. And they're very serious and important issues that have to be addressed at multiple levels. And it's why you'll find leading medical societies and leaders saying clearly that racism is a threat to health. Yes, crystal clear. Thank you for that. That was very helpful. For anyone who's listening, you know, whether they're in the maternal healthcare system and they're pregnant or not, what are some of the things that a given patient can do to advocate for themselves? What would you tell them? Yeah, I have long been an advocate for the importance of choosing carefully those people who you are allowing to have an influence over your life. There is information asymmetry, right? They know more than you do about most conditions that you're going to see them for, but you know more than they will ever know about yourself. So you need to make sure your healthcare provider is listening to you, taking your needs and wants into account and respecting your role in the decision-making process. And that's what often in quality is referred to patient centeredness, right? It's that element where, and you can observe it. You can be an expert in whether or not your care is patient centered more than you can observe technical quality. So yes, you want to get referrals and you want to collect information about your provider's experience. If you're having a surgery, the most important question to ask, you know, especially say you're going to deliver, you're a high risk delivery. You need to ask who's going to deliver my baby because they might be in a practice where, you know, you get whoever's on call. And then for each person who might deliver your baby, you got you can ask that question, how many high risk deliveries have you done this year, right? And you're looking for the number that's as high as possible. And what were your outcomes? It is okay to ask a physician what the death rate is. A lot of us don't feel like saying that, so say survival rate, go it the other way, right? What's the survival rate of your patients? And that is data that they can get access to. And most hospitals today would provide that. So for the moms out there, I would put it this way, put as much effort in choosing your doctor as you would in choosing your daycare provider, right? Both of them are dealing with what really matters, the physical and psychological well-being of you or a family member. So I, I think in general, people accept a poor relationship with the healthcare provider because they believe they don't have choice when in fact you have full choice. I love that. And I also love, you know, the thing to do when you're picking your daycare centers, who's the first, you know, group that you ask, you ask fellow mothers. And yes. uh, so in my experience, my own pregnancy turned out to be high risk. My son was diagnosed with a, a heart condition in utero. Those moms, I mean, uh, every tip and trick that I learned was given to me by mothers who had been through the experience before me. And yes. I'll tell you what, the negotiating power of cardiac moms, <laughs> it's, they don't mess around with, with, you know, with the health of their kids coming. I found that to be a really valuable lesson. And I certainly paid it forward by, you know, just remaining open for other moms who were coming after us in our experience. And, and so that personal network, I think, is, is really beneficial as well. Very valuable. It is. And if you don't have the personality to take someone on, those they consider to be in power, particularly if they have a really big knowledge gap with that person, I would say, you know, you get an advocate and yes. you just have to find someone who's willing to keep asking the questions you want to ask, take them with you and really push the issues you want to push. And don't be afraid to go see someone else or with telemedicine today, it's easier to get second opinions 
can send your results to another doctor and get a televisit and just try to press the issue again and choose. My nephew's going through this now with a new chronic diagnosis that he just got, unfortunately, over this past year. And and he's only 20, you know, and, and I keep telling him, you know, you're not done till you're comfortable, right? So where yes. you say, yes, I can work with this person on my health. Yes, when, when we were in hospital with my son, you know, of course, the hospital sent a social worker along. And I was like, well, I don't know that I really need a social worker. Like, you know, we've got our family unit here. And, but there was one night when I called at the time, you couldn't stay with your child in NICU. And so I would call every night and I would check in with the night team on um, how my son was doing in the NICU. And I got someone on the phone who just really didn't satisfy, you know, my question. I just, it really left me rattled through the night. Well, the next day, you know, the social worker was the person that I went and saw. And I, you know, I had a moment where I was just, you know, sort of full of emotion and just worried and anxious. And that social worker became the advocate for the rest of our journey. And it really was this, you know, just learning another learning moment to be able to ask for help, find the advocate and have them take on some of that for you on your behalf. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And then the uh, the only other piece of advice I would give is, you know, whether you connect with or don't connect with a healthcare provider and, and the way that they interact with you, it is certainly true in that scenario, you'll always get more with sugar than spice. So, you know, you are going to get the best out of your healthcare experience if you can keep maintaining this even keel and very much being respectful in your relationship with them. I know I've, I've certainly had moments where I've been sort of freaked out and it's very hard to maintain composure. That's when someone else can really help too. Mm -hmm. um, because what you don't wanna do is that other person still has knowledge. You don't wanna shut them down. Right. You want to keep wanting them want to help you in a very exhausting shift. They're probably on, you know, so I'm, I'm always telling everyone, look, you know, you know, you need some help when you can't maintain composure anymore, either because you're too upset or you're too angry because, you know, let's face it, when you or a loved one is sick, I mean, you're sad and you're angry. Yes. Yes. This has really been a, an important conversation that I know that will continue. And thank you for taking the time to spend with us today. At the end of every podcast, we give our guests some free space to share their final thoughts with those listening. What would you like to leave our audience with today, Christine? Oh, thanks. I am just, first of all, very excited that we're talking about healthcare disparities in a meaningful way, because I think it's a discussion that needs to happen. But I want to leave a special message for those who don't trust the healthcare system, right? There have been some atrocities in the healthcare system as it relates particularly to the black community and the way that they were treated or and not informed about some of the experimentation that has happened in the past. And what I would say is, well, first of all, it's horrible and it should never have happened. But at the same time, help yourselves and your family not to pull away from the healthcare system because you need to balance the risks and the risk of not getting treatment or not doing the screening that you should do far outweighs the risk of imperfect treatment. So, you know, the healthcare system's come a long way. There's still a long way to go. Get that advocacy done, but don't be afraid to get your medical care. You know, in today's day and age, there's many more protections and we owe it to one another to take this topic on and find out the best way to rid our society of hurtful bias and change the systems, but also stay engaged in it because healthcare system, particularly your prevention, can be really important to your long-term health. Thank you, Christine. 
Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Visit careers.boozallen.com to learn how you can be unstoppable with Booz Allen. Be the future. Work with us. The world can't wait.